0: The Doctor Is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me.
2: You just patted yourself
1: on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't
0: know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person.
1: I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk.
0: You know, I was looking for a deeper answer.
1: Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept.
3: You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend.
0: Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray.
1: You know why Halloween is one of my favorite holidays? Because you can trespass on a stranger's property and make a non-negotiable demand. Yeah, you can. That's good. This is Dr. Ray. Thanks for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. This is the Friday variant of The Doctor Is In. This is Look Back Friday take previous calls I'm looking up there at the board see what we got looks like a range there and I comment on them I add hopefully something helpful something that was not said during the call the first time around obviously with a brief radio call you can't do therapy or diagnose or any such thing but you can give a few thoughts few ideas maybe some education and then later, if I see in the call that there's a couple of points I could have made or a direction I could have gone in or something that I wasn't clear about. I mean, that did happen. Uh, when, when did that happen? That I think it last happened, uh, uh, it was March 4th, uh, 2002. Yeah, I, I think that's when it was. Am I, am I clear about that? So we're going to get to those calls in a little bit. But as is the routine, the monologue if I were to ask every person listening to this program, all 182 of you, are you a sinner? I don't think, in fact, I'm relatively certain, no one would say I'm not. Everyone would say I am. My generic, Sinner Theory We all would admit that we are sinners as a matter of fact We admit it rather readily We don't we don't try to hide it to are we're, we're not quote-unquote ashamed of it We don't become defensive. What, what do you mean am I a sinner? What What exactly do you mean? No, we, we don't do that. We say yes. Yes, I am by God's grace. I'll i will I'll do better, but yeah, I'm a sinner. And it's it's almost taken in stride. It is the aspect of, of who we are. No argument from anybody. Here's the catch. We do get defensive when somebody brings up a specific sin. For example, if somebody says, You know, you you were late. You made me wait a long time, and you've done that before. Sometimes we'll say, I know, I'm sorry. But other times we'll say, well, well, wait, wait. Uh, Well, first of all, I didn't didn't expect what was going to happen. So we start to become defensive. In other words, don't pick out a particular sin that I do because I will resist, at least some of the time. So I can accept generically I'm a sinner, which means that I have a whole bunch of small sins. Hopefully not too big ones, but which means I have a whole catalog of sins making up my generic umbrella, I'm a sinner. But when someone points out, uh, read spouse, read relative, read parent, When someone points out what they believe is a particular sin that I do in either social relations or my temper or my emotions or being critical, uh, whatever it might be, we have two possible levels of response. One, we can give them some credibility And look and see if, in fact, there is some truth to what they're saying about this particular sin. Or we can resist it. We can say, in so many words, you're way off. Yeah, well, what about you? We can say, I don't do that. We can say, you misunderstand. We can say, I have reasons for doing that. We can say, you drove me to it. I mean, we have all kinds of justifications, which is, in effect, saying, I don't have that particular sin. Now, that may be the case. Obviously, people who accuse you of things aren't automatically right. A lot of times they're accusing you because they're, they're seeing it through their own lens and they're misinterpreting what you're doing or they're hostile or they're unfair or they can be mean-spirited but sometimes they're right and the question becomes why is it so easy to admit I'm a sinner but so hard to admit I have that particular sin as long as we keep it vague general generic sinner Without getting too particular about the whole thing Without saying well my sinner status is Composed of this 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 this, and this Now for those of us who go to confession we are forced to be particular about our sins But is it safe to say that we're more resistant if someone else would point out a particular sin, if you let me acknowledge a sin, as I might do in confession, that's okay, because I, I decided it was sinful. But if you decide it was sinful, even though, even though I might know there's truth to what you say, there's a part of me that resists it. So, I guess the point of this monologue is there's a, certain, there's a certain irony, there's a certain inconsistency. On one hand, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that, I realize it, I admit it, uh, and, I, and I even don't have a, a hard time with it. On the other hand, don't look too closely at the particular sins that enter into being labeled a sinner because I don't like to look at that. Just keep it keep it vague, would you? Just keep it indistinct. Keep it generic. I can admit to that. This is Dr. Ray. When we come back, we are going to headlong dive first into your previous questions and then I hopefully will have something of usefulness to
0: add
4: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian Prayer Series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com.
0: The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle.
3: In St. Ignatius of Loyola's fourth rule for the discernment of spirits, he teaches that one of the aspects of spiritual desolation is, as he describes it, movement to low and earthly things. This aspect of spiritual desolation is the contrary to what a soul experiences in spiritual consolation. In spiritual consolation, we experience an upward call to heavenly things. The contrary is true in spiritual desolation. There will be a downward pull towards low and earthly things. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, Persons in spiritual desolation, on the contrary, feel no attraction to prayer and to God's service, but are drawn toward lower and more earthly things, Identifying and understanding this downward pull as from the enemy and then rejecting it enables greater freedom from the empty promises of spiritual desolation.
0: For more information, visit avimariaradio.net.
3: The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the
5: other side of the tracks. <laughs> My uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> Put one nickel in it and it's emptied. <laughs> and I brought him home in a bag and my mother looked at me where did you get all that money I said I won him you didn't win him he fixed the machine I didn't care if he fixed the machine or
3: not
0: EWTN. No. Live Truth Live Catholic
3: I think I finally figured out your sense of humor
1: There's a theory, it's a wild theory, it's one of these stretching philosophy theories that states if anybody discovers exactly why the universe is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more inexplicable. And there is another theory that says that has already happened. This is Dr. Ray. Thanks for joining me. Doctor is in Monday through Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern time. Co-production of the Ave Maria Radio Network and EWTN, Global Catholic Radio Network. Let's see what we've got up there in terms of calls. Got an anonymous mom from Ohio asking about her teen daughter.
5: Yes, we have... um a young college age daughter who um, has unfortunately been making um, some some decisions um, that she knows goes against um, you know our upbringing that has affected um, college and um, some other places in her life and um, my husband and i are um, have had uh, quite a bit of financial loss due to these decisions and we are concerned um for her well-being, concern for her future. She's extremely bright, extremely beautiful, has um, such wonderful potential, and um, we are really struggling with, um, you know, our teachings of forgiving a person, you know, a million times. We love her dearly. Um, we have been hurt, obviously, by this, and we continue to forgive, and we want to forgive, and we want to love her, um, but we're just having a hard time between that and just kind of you know, getting run over uh, constantly and also trying to draw an end or a change to this behavior, as well as um, the impact it's having on um, younger children in the family and just, you know, on our family dynamics altogether.
1: You know, are you saying, Mom, that uh, kind of a code phrase here, we keep trying to forgive, we keep trying to forgive, we know we should be forgiving. Uh, are you saying that your daughter comes to you and says, gee, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm going to really change you, it'll help me change? Or are you saying that, no, your daughter's uh, pretty concerned with living the way she wants to live and you better get used to it?
5: It's kind of both, actually. Uh, She does apologize, um, and then a couple of days later goes back to doing the same thing. Mm -hmm.
1: So she quit school, you put a bunch of money into her school, right? And she flunked out.
5: Yeah, basically. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Did she go away to school or did she stay home?
5: She did not live at home.
1: So f- for example, she she got wild and free at college and uh, you indirectly found out about it as she as she went down in flames. She is back home now?
5: Yeah, but um she is back home technically, but um she's still kind of making a lot of those bad decisions um or actions.
1: She's living kind of wild and free.
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: And she's using your home as a base of operations.
5: Kind of, kind of, um, you know, kind of off and on.
1: How do you do that off and on? In other words, she doesn't come home sometimes? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Oh. You got younger kids watching all this, don't you? Yes. So do they think that, uh, oh, I guess once you get to be 19, the rules change, and you can kind of tell mom and dad the way it's going to be?
5: Right. There's been some of that, and then there's been some, like, what are you guys doing about this? And, like, you know, you can't keep letting her do that. And then there's been also, you know, some additional disrespect, like, well, you let such and such do this. And
1: Well, sure. The rules changed. Yeah. So what yeah. has kept yeah. you from from actually setting down your terms?
5: Obviously, we love her dearly. We don't want her to um, cut off contact with us. And. Um, but does
1: loving her dearly mean that you've got to put up with what she does?
5: Well, that's what I think we're having a hard time drawing the line. Like We always want her to understand that it's safe to come home. Um, and you know, we'll always
1: help She's us. living foolishly. She's living probably riskily. In what she's doing correct yes and you're afraid that if you don't somehow conform your family to this that you could lose her
5: yeah it's not that we want to conform our family I guess um we're struggling like you know the big teaching in the Bible of the constant forgiveness like maybe yeah, I guess constant forgiveness I guess if you're my, so like,
1: constant forgiveness if you're repentant doesn't sound like your daughter's yeah. repentant I mean, I don't think there's... I think you're equating two very different things. One is that, yeah, you forgive when the person says, I'm sorry and I want to change and will you help me? That's true with your child. But then, on the other hand, if she continues to act the way she wants to act, I don't know if it's forgiveness by saying, well, we have to let her act that way. I think it's not so much that you're caught up in how much to forgive I think you're scared to death of what would happen to your daughter if you said here's the terms for living here if you can't follow them you don't live here
5: right that is definitely a big part of it
1: you know? I can't tell you what to do mom but I can tell you my experience and that is one you have to ask yourself a question am I helping my daughter by doing this? That's the big question. Two, is it only going to get worse to the point where we can no longer tolerate any of this, not only for her sake, but for the sake of our other children who are looking at this and saying, what the heck happened to mom and dad? Yeah. If you're saying to me, Dr. Ray, can you give me some ideas on how to convince my daughter to live better? I've been a therapist for 45 years, Mom. My answer to that is no. (laughs) Because your daughter wants to do what your daughter wants to do. And until she gets to the point where she realizes what she's doing is hurting herself and hurting people she loves and hurting her brothers and sisters, then she may be more open To hearing words, but it sounds like you're describing, no, she wants to do what she wants to do. It is now epidemic that many parents, as they watch their children traverse the landscape as young adults, have a hard time transitioning from the little sweetheart that they raised, the one who loved them, the one who was in so many ways going to be a nun or a priest or just was warm and caring towards the whole family to watch this young adult seemingly, in many respects, either turn on them or or just follow the culture's ways. It's very hard for them to make that transition. So what they do is they hope and pray that if they continue to give chance after chance after chance after chance after chance that the kids will grow up the kids will recognize and the kids will see the foolishness of what they're doing now that does happen i can't say that doesn't happen it does happen my experience is that's a minority of the time that it happens typically what happens is it gets worse because there's more foolish decisions piled upon the previous foolish decisions and sometimes it gets severe. There's legal problems, a pregnancy, something, uh, hidden drug use, emotional struggles, because you can't live poorly and not have it affect your emotions. Many people who live poorly are not devil-may-care absolutely happy. It's real clear research. You don't need common sense. The research supports your common sense on that. So what's happening here in this case is that, one, the fear factor. The parents are very afraid to say, oh, look, you can't, you can't do this. You, can't. She, you hear what mom said? Mom said, she stays out overnight. Well, where do you think she is? Where do you think she's gone? What do you think she's doing? Well, she says, I'm sorry. Well, that's fine. But what motivates the I'm sorry? Is it an I'm sorry of, okay, get off my case, mom. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. But that's okay because the next time the opportunity occurs, I'm going to do it again. Right, You can't go to confession and say, I'm sorry, and then have a, a resolution to commit the same sin if the opportunity arises. You can't do that. You, you don't get forgiveness if that's your attitude. I said that once to a priest. This is many, many, many years ago. I said, I don't think that's a sin, Father. And he says, well, it is. And I said, well, I don't think it is. And he said, well, then I can't give you absolution. And he was right. He was absolutely right. So. What do they do? I think it'll be forced upon them. I think that that they will be too nervous, unsure, with a cloud over them that says we could never ever live with ourselves if we set the conditions that our daughter had to leave if she didn't cooperate. And I, I suspect she's not going to cooperate. And then, uh, and, and they did, she didn't mention this, but I would guess the daughter's not going to church. The rest of the family goes to church. The daughter doesn't. Or if she does she just goes and goes through the motions. She stands like a pillar of salt during mass This is really unfair to the other kids really unfair and you know What sometimes parents don't realize is that they're they're risking a reaction for example when the next kid gets to be that age and May or may not pull some of these stunts and the parents think to themselves. Well, we went through this once, we're not going through it again. And then they come down with a hammer. What's the second kid going to think? Oh, oh, I see. It was okay for my older sibling to do it, but it's not okay for me. See, that's, that's risking resentment. It really is. You've got to have one set of conditions for all the kids. You don't say. Well, because she's kind of tough, and well, we're afraid of what she's going to do, and well, she kind of can make these sort of decisions that, and, I don't know, could bring some some real rain down upon her life. Um, so okay, we won't. But then, but then, when the next one comes along, well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna try to learn from our first bunch of uh, uh, looseness, and and we'll come down a little tighter on the second one. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Will the second one accept this? Well, the second one say, yeah, okay, I, I kind of see what you're doing, Mom and Dad. You learned, you learned some lessons with my bigger sister, and, and you're not letting me do that. I, I think that's fair. I, maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. Many parents are now forced into this situation. I had a 26-year-old son who was in grad school, very cooperative, pleasant young man. He's 26, living at home. Cool. Great. Not a problem. I also had a 19 year old son who was not so cooperative he had to go wasn't wasn't nastiness I didn't say all right you're out of here punk no, no no I didn't I didn't want to do that but I decided it was best he's much older now and he's he's, he's definitely uh, much more stable now than he was when he was 19 and our relationship is very very warm but back then it was not something. I mean there were five younger siblings. It was not something I could say, well, okay. Okay, I'll just kind of roll with this for a while. Yeah, parents gotta ask themselves, why am I permitting this? That's the question. Why am I permitting this? Am I helping the person that I'm allowing to make these kinds of moves and decisions? And where will this end up?
0: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Ninth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We already discussed in the sixth commandment the problems of sexual sins themselves, but what the Lord is teaching here is rooted in the word covet. To covet means to inordinately or inappropriately desire something or someone. And in this case, the Lord is saying to us that we are in no way to covet to look with lust at another person, particularly our neighbor's wife, but others in general, and that therefore all pornography and things like that have to go, all entertaining of lustful thoughts has to go. And God can help us by His grace to do that. Therefore, in this commandment, he summons us to take authority over our thought life and our sexual passions. The Ninth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife.
6: For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Why do we have confession? According to the Catholic Catechism, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for the sinful members of his church, especially those who had fallen into grave sin, thus losing their baptismal grace and wounding their ecclesial communion. Over the centuries, the administration of the sacrament has evolved. In the early Church, penitents guilty of particularly grave offenses, such as idolatry, murder, adultery, were required to do public penance, sometimes for years before receiving reconciliation. In the 7th century, Irish missionaries, inspired by Eastern monastic tradition, brought the practice of private penance to Europe. This effectively ended public penance before forgiveness, making the sacrament essentially between penitent and priest, as it is today. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
1: I had a guy come into my office, and he was convinced there was a monster living under his bed. I said, well, visit me for several sessions. It's so much a session, and and I think you'll be cured. Well, apparently, the cost was a little rich for this guy, so he says, well, I'll think about it. He comes in six months later, and I said, "Uh, how's the fears coming? Uh, You... uh, You basically uh, didn't tell me how it was going to go, and you never came back. He says, well, uh, a bartender cured me for only $10. Uh, How do you do that? He told me to cut the legs off my bed. (laughs) Sometimes it's just a matter of logistics. This is Look Back Friday. Let's go to the next call we're going to look back on, and then I'm going to say something about it. all right, this will probably take us into past the hard break. Uh, Joel from Iowa has a little guy, six years old. They got a new dog, and uh, he's anxious around this dog. He
2: got a six-year-old who says this puppy's scaring the dickens out of me. He's got a little bit of an issue with anxiety, and he's the youngest of four. We we had a we had a dog that um, you know, we had to eventually put down when he was probably about one and a half. I mean he's never been attacked by a dog. His experiences with dogs are not like you know he's never been attacked or bit or scratched or anything like that. You know, and they've sort of been around like the neighborhood and stuff. And we went to explore you know getting a puppy again and getting another dog. It didn't see didn't seem to be a real big deal, but he's gotten progressively more and more scared and unreasonably so. I mean What's he do? We're we're very serious. I, you know we're very serious about training the dog. So it's not like we let the dog run amok. And, and she's a ten week old puppy, but he, I mean he'll get up in the morning, and won't come down the stairs. And we'll ask where she is. Mm-hmm. He'll kind of you know go through places in the house where we don't allow her to go to get from one place to another. He'll sit up on the sofa in the living room, like kind of pulled back away from the edge. You know where the rest of us will be. You know, or some of us will be sitting on the floor playing with the puppy. you know he just doesn't want to interact with her at all. Are and, you trying to convince um, him to interact with her? Kind of yes and no i mean we're we're not forcing him to um no, I'm just trying to convince him like you're
1: talking to him to calm him down, to get him to recognize there's nothing to fear here all of the all of the oh, reasoning sure. that you're doing. Yeah, cut, I mean,
2: we try to reason with him. That being said, he's a six-year-old, you know. I'd cut back seconded. on all.
1: I'd cut back on all that.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Because you've done it for how long now, and all that's happening is he's retreating further. Correct.
2: Right. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. Absolutely.
1: So let's do this. This is the phrase I was waiting to use. Photosynthesis. Well, close. You're close, and you're not going to know this phrase. Okay, you can say you can, so you can sound smart too. Do you know what successive approximation is?
2: Nope, you got me there. Go. Told you. That's why. This is why I'm the host.
1: You're just a rank Nicely amateur done. caller. Thank you.
2: Nicely
1: done. It's a behavior modification term that means you inch your way toward the goal. See, they always they always have these fancy terms that sound like really smart stuff when all it is is just a step by step process toward the goal. So, for example, he's sitting on the couch, and you've got the little puppy, and you bring him into the living room, and you're playing with this little puppy. You're having fun with it, and you're smiling, and having a good time. And you look at your little son, and say, "Well, you know, you're missing a lot of you're missing a lot of fun there, son. But that's okay. If you want to stay up there, that's your business."
2: Or, uh, do you have do you have other kids? Yeah, he's the youngest of four.
1: Okay, get some of the older ones in there to play with him, in front of him, mm-hmm. little bit by little bit. Uh, I personally wouldn't allow him necessarily to go through all kinds of avoidant behaviors that he's he's conjuring up now he's got to figure out a way to navigate right. through your house without coming within 72 feet of this dog all right right i would have the dog that's for the example
2: that's most troubling yeah
1: yeah I, I i would have the dog in my lap a lot and say well okay you want to create dogs right here i'm holding it you're welcome
2: no no i don't want to okay
1: all right don't okay yeah, I'm not going to set myself over it. Now, part of what I might even throw in here, and this is where it gets controversial, is I might say, well, you're not, you're not allowed to watch TV from the other room because we have the dog in the TV room watching TV. If you're going to watch TV, you have to come in with us, or at least somewhere close mm-hmm. in the same room, Right. the old successive approximation. Because, no, you can't sit out in the kitchen and watch TV when we're sitting on the couch with the dog in our lap. Nope, not going to happen, son. So if you want to come in here, you don't have to sit on the couch, but you better sit on a chair nearby. And then little by little, I would require him to get closer to the dog. That's going to happen naturally. I didn't really have time to talk about that in the call. The dog and the little guy are living in the same house. So he's doing particular things that he thinks will keep him safe from this rather scary creature in his mind. But when he sees the other kids playing with the dog, he sees mom and dad having the dog in their lap, uh, he's going to absorb this. He's, He's going to slowly, I believe he will anyway, come to the conclusion there's no danger here see the danger right now is in his mind and that's really what most phobias are we create a danger in our mind for something that isn't dangerous so he will ultimately adjust to this dog I would be 99% sure of that in the meantime and I didn't address this in the question either you got to watch the bad habits for example dad said He's up at the top of the stairs and he calls down and he says, where's the dog? So he wants mom and dad to say, don't worry about it. The dog is over here and he, the dog's outside. No, I would just simply say, I don't know. He's somewhere around here. Mom, I'm not coming down. Okay. In, in essence, what you're saying is you're going to constrict your movement if you don't get to the point where you readjust your thinking. So two, two things will be at play. One, he'll see that everybody in the family enjoys this little puppy. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a Rottweiler and get to be 135 pounds. I don't know. Probably not. Not the way Dad described it. You know. Two, he is, as I said, kind of the TV-watching thing. It's not going to be... Okay, we're going to we're going to answer your concern about where the dog is or we're going to make sure we tell you I'm holding the dog. You don't have to worry about it. I probably wouldn't do that. I would just more or less say, well, okay, we're in here in the front room. If you want to come in, we'd love to have you, son. But whatever you decide and you just kind of play it down. And what you're doing is you're you're putting it back upon him. It's, it's not our responsibility to convince you it's all okay. You're going to have to decide it's all okay. And I'm not at risk of any danger here. And the good news is little six-year-olds are a lot better than that than 30, at that than 36-year-olds. They truly are. I have a lot easier time getting little kids out of phobias than I do adults.
6: Connection with Teresa Tomio, There's so many issues that need to be discussed when we're looking at this continuing problem of mass shootings. At the heart of it is what's going on with the human person, though. Father John Ricardo brings up deaths of despair in great detail in his beautiful Rescue Project series. Or so many young people now, or with that survey pre COVID, were talking about how desperate they felt, how lonely they felt, how isolated they felt how suicidal they felt. And then we had a recent survey come out from the CDC looking at a similar case with young girls and this feeling of desperation and loneliness that despite everything they had access to and what they could do with their bodies, this so-called freedom, the world's version of freedom that shoved down our throats every single day, they're still not happy.
1: Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio.
2: Christ is
4: the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friend's in need, he can heal, they've seen him heal before, and yet somehow because he loves him, he stays, and Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is, in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care?
1: You know, I used to like to walk down the street whistling. But people look at you like you're weird. If you're just whistling to yourself, you know some of them are thinking, "Uh, I better walk on the other side of the road from this guy. He looks like he's in his own world, and what's he whistling about? They don't think, that's a happy fella. You know, all the old songs whistle while you work, and... certain titles of songs with whistling in it were all paired with an upbeat kind of happy, zestful look at life. Now you try whistling. People looking like, what? Oh, boy. Uh, Better check that dude. He he could be on something. Um, Allison from Michigan. All I have up here in the summary of the call is compulsions. That's all I wrote down. I'm assuming... These are Allison's compulsions. Oh, wait, I better define compulsion if I didn't do it in the call, but I don't remember. A compulsion is something. It's a repetitive behavior that someone feels compelled, if you will, to do. And if they don't, there will be a level of anxiety that in their mind is overwhelming. Who is scrupulous and who is superstitious? Uh, I think that's me. Um, oh, I never so. would have guessed that.
3: <laughs> right? I've had a couple traumatic events happen in the past, but I think what I'm trying to do, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is try to create a sense of norm, like calmness, and things are repeating, and it's okay. And there's, I guess, tranquility in the world, and it's not always going to be uh, up and down, you know, all the time. Um, what I'm doing is I'm just repeating that I like to do, and I feel like it's kind of like a ritual or, a super, or kind of almost a superstition in a sense, because I don't feel like I can get out of my routine. Like if I put on a sock a certain way, or if I have to ride my bicycle in a certain direction, I feel like it's something that I have
1: to do. So, well, you're, you're describing what would be defined as a compulsion. Something that if you don't do it, it creates uneasiness. It creates an anxiety. If you wouldn't put your sock on in the same direction as you did yesterday, you would feel that something bad might happen. Is that true?
3: Yeah, I feel like something bad would happen. I guess, in a sense, or yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have the same like I did. I started it by saying hey like God God loves me the same every day and so I would do this thing every day because it reminded me that God loved me the same every day like it's, and and now I think it's just turning into more of like a well now I have to do it because
1: how many of these compulsions do you have
3: just two that I know I love.
1: <laughs> which which two are those
3: so one is riding my bicycle in a certain direction and the other one is putting a sock on my right foot
1: those are the, only, those the only two That's the only two. That's not bad. Okay. You were starting to make me (laughs) nervous there because I figured you were just, those were two you described as examples, but you really had a whole flock of them.
3: Oh, no. Those are the ones I'm thinking and I'm like, well, why can't I not just do it?
1: Well, you can. You just don't like the feeling if you don't. Right. So what would happen if you said to yourself, I'm not going to ride my bike in that direction? I don't want to. I'm going to feel anxious about it, but that will go away in time. What if you did that?
3: I mean, I can definitely give it a shot. (laughs) I don't think everything would fall
1: apart, but... Well, see, that was my next question. Hmm. Have you concocted in your mind that if you didn't put that sock on the same way, you're risking something unknown bad happening later in the day or tomorrow or to someone you love have you gone that far?
3: It, it's, it's crossed my mind. I think the other part of it is that if I don't do it that way I'll be thinking about that all day. But now I'm at the point where I'm, I'm still thinking about it all day because I'm doing it. And well, I'm thinking that's probably to do.
1: So. You want good news, you want bad news. The good news is that you can stop this. And if you if you do, ultimately, you're going to rewire your brain and -hmm. you're not going to be as anxious if you don't put your sock on the same way. So that's Mm -hmm. the good news. The bad news is you're going to have to weather this for a little while because it's going to unsettle you. Because you're going Mm -hmm. to think what will happen if i don't put that sock on the same way i don't know what will happen oh gee and then to make it even worse that's why i'm a psychologist i think about how to make it even worse Mm. if something bad happens that day totally unrelated yeah you say to yourself was it because i didn't put my sock on right right you have to recognize that those thoughts are completely irrational do you oh yeah well that's good that's real good news because compulsions or even obsessions are more fixable when the person says this is ridiculous because believe it or not many people don't say it's ridiculous they believe this is what I gotta do Mm -hmm. so if you're asking me Allison best way to rewire your thinking is to say to yourself I don't care how much I feel like I have to put this sock on this way and ride this bike this way I'm not going to do it and that will give you a sense of control over your own existence (laughs) it's like I'm not bound by these compulsions that sort of control me because you control you they don't control you Isn't the mind a powerful thing? Look what we can do to ourselves just by thinking. Allison admitted that she would worry there would be some kind of causal link between the sock going on the wrong foot first And two days later, hearing of some unfortunate circumstance to her or to someone she loves. Now, there is absolutely no connection whatsoever in anything like that. And she knows it, but she would allow her mind to dwell on it, thus creating the emotion thus creating the superstitious anxiety. One of the things when... See, she doesn't have a whole lot of compulsion. She's got two. That's why I was kind of surprised. She's relatively circumscribed. Big fancy word there. I like using fancy words because it makes me sound photosynthesis. So, if she would counter this... Labeled compulsion, and we—it's got to—it's got to be labeled. I mean, we call it a compulsion, and that makes it sound like something she can't resist. It's a compulsion. I'm forced. No, you're not forced. You have created a scenario where you have surrendered to this thought, which drives the behavior. If you were to counter it, yes. Yes, she she would have to deal with some resultant anxiety. But in time, that would be countered by a feeling of control. I am the master of what decisions I make regarding my habits. Now, I got to thinking if she has to ride her bike in one direction, she can never get back home. I mean, I don't know how many times she's felt compelled to do that, but she, she's probably calling me 80, 100 miles from home by now because obviously you got to ride it in the other direction to come back home. Either that or she goes around the block. I don't know. It's the old joke. My mom started walking two miles a day. It's Saturday, six days later. We don't know where she is. Old joke. Compulsions seem like they are inconquerable things. Look at the word. Compulsion. Forced. Dictated. Out of control habit. But they're not. They have a life because we don't like what we do to ourselves if we don't do the compulsion. That's the irony, isn't it? The brain concocts the compulsion and then the brain says oh well i'll concoct something else if you don't do the compulsion isn't that interesting the the thought the thought forces the behavior and the attempt to resist the behavior creates another thought which is i'll be distressed But until one can say, I can accept the distress. It's an uncomfortable state, but it isn't going to kill me. There's nobody threatening my life or my health or my well-being. It's me. It's my brain doing this to me. Oh, but Dr. Ray, I have to check the doors twice. Make sure they're locked before I go to bed. That doesn't mean it's a compulsion. Keep in mind, this is... This is a continuum. Did you notice what Allison said? Oh, this is fascinating. She said, initially this started out as a reminder. It was a little habit. I'm going to put the sock on this foot first. little habit that God never changes in his love for me. He is always constant. But then look what happened. That reminder faded and she became compelled in her mind. To do this so therefore it was no longer a little cutesy trick to remind herself God is ever faithful it was now something that she felt she had to do well at least she didn't go too far with that she didn't say well if I don't do it God doesn't love me and there are people who do that by the way that's a tougher one to break i've got to do this because if i don't do this god doesn't love me i remember oh boy i'm running out of time i get this in real quick cool. well all right i'll take the break and then we'll talk about when i was seven and i had this obsessive kind of thinking that sister Lagori knocked right out of me
0: this is dr ray would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot Something that stands in utter contrast to the lies of this world. It's called the Word of God. The Word of God is what demolishes all that sets itself up as an opponent to the good, the true, and the beautiful. All that sets itself up as an opponent to Christ Jesus. The Word of God is given to us so that we have something to hold on to that's true in all circumstances. We always have a place where we can wash ourselves in the regenerating waters of Scripture. We have a place to retreat to, where we can cling to what is true. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, of the joint and the marrow, and it's a judge and critic of the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Cresta in the
2: Afternoon, Weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio.
1: All right, I've got two minutes left. I want to piggyback on what I was saying. I was seven years old, and I developed this thing in my head where I was making promises to God, but they were ridiculous promises. For example, if I saw a squirrel in a tree, in my mind popped in this, I, I promise to God the squirrel's not going to jump. No, 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 I don't promise. And what was happening is if I saw a car, I, I promise to God that that, that, that turn signal's not going to go on. And this was, this was starting to suck up my time, and I was getting more and more anxious as this little seven-year-old nerd that I was. So I don't know how it came about, whether my mom referred me or whether Sister Ligori, who was my first communion teacher, we were talking. I remember where we were. We were in the front pew, just she and I in the front pew of St. Anthony's Parish, Mother Angelica's Parish in Canton, Ohio, where I went as an Italian. Because the law was every Italian in Canton had to go to St. Anthony's. That was a law. And Sister Lagori explained to me, oh, no, you can't make a promise like that to God. Because you're not promising. I'm not? No. No, those are just thoughts popping into your head. You're not making a promise. Really? And I walked out of there like a stone had been taken off of me. And that was it. I was done. But had she not done that, I'm hoping somebody at some point would have done it, but... Had she not, I think I would have just continued to build up more and more situations where I was having this intrusive thought, making a promise to God that, oh, that guy over there, he's gonna turn into that store. I promise I promised to God he's gonna turn into that store. Well, see what I did to myself, my little seven year old quirky mind. What I said was, one, I'm making a promise to God and and if in fact the guy doesn't turn into the store then it's my fault cuz I broke my promise to God. Now, I can look back on that now and think, "Man, is that goofy?" Woo-hoo. But at age 7, we're all full of little quirks and hiccups in our makeup. I like that hiccup in my makeup. Or you could make up your hiccup if you're a woman, I suppose. And Sister LaGaurie, I'll never, I'll never forget her. She probably 25, 26 years old at the time, and I thought she was an old person. Probably just a young, young sister. So, my own personal experience with intrusive thoughts, kind of ruminations that were threatening to become obsessions... This is Dr. Ray. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Doctors in Good Lord. I'll see you Monday. Thanks, Andrew Kruchek, for all you do over there in Ann Arbor. And walk with God. He doesn't need you to put your sock on a certain way to be ever faithful.
0: For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.